Ephesians chapter 1 is where we'll be. And this morning we'll begin at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship and daughtership through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches, riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were first who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. What's up, fam? Okay. Okay, y'all up. Okay. So it was another day in the Midwest when he walked up to his school locker to find himself face-to-face with the swastika once again. Questions and frustrations were spinning through his mind. Why are my people hated by some? He thought to himself. The school hallways were supposed to be a place where he would feel safe and secure among his peers. Instead, in those spaces he would hear, Hitler should have finished you all off as some type of joke. You Jews are Zionist pigs. This was his experience through middle and high school. But after graduating, he enrolled at the University of Minnesota and began to make new friends pretty quickly. Some of these friends turned out to be followers of Jesus. And as you know, some anxious college kids always invite friends to college gatherings, right? So they approached him. He was like, oh man, here we go. This false prophet Jesus guy. But if there's food there, I'm down to go. (laughs) After joining these gatherings for a few months, he found himself being compelled by Jesus' offering, his invitation of an entire recategorization and reorganization of life. He began to see how Jesus' teachings and life practices were familiar to him culturally. He came to see Jesus as a unique form of fulfillment of the Jewish principles that he was raised on. So he came to trust Jesus as the one in whom the Hebrew Bible, the scriptures that he grew up on, was driving towards the whole time. Jesus is Israel's Messiah. I trust that now. This is my friend Aaron Shaw. For weeks... In months and years, Aaron tried to wrap his mind around what his allegiance to Jesus the Messiah meant for his life now and for those around him. His love for Jesus deepened and he was stirred up to pursue a life of vocational ministry. He was young, 
still young. I see you, bro. Driven, <laughs> excited, and teachable. And he found himself on several church staffs with the hope of being trained up to be a pastor. However, his experiences in those spaces were reminiscent of his secondary school hallways. Some of his leaders believed his Jewishness would be a barrier to ministry. In those spaces, he would hear, you know, don't, don't get too Jewish with that. What does that mean, first of all? When you preach, don't opt for a Jewish angle, opt for a gospel-centered angle, as if good news, as if the gospel was not preached by a Jew. Fortunately, these experiences never caused Aaron to flinch in his allegiance to Jesus the Messiah. Instead, he continued to plug into believing communities full of Gentiles, meaning ethnically non-Jews, and is now a part of Bridgetown where he would say, as some of his wounds of his past are being healed, we, this family, is a body of Jews and Gentiles unified under Jesus of Nazareth, Israel's Messiah, who has come to deliver the nations. The uni this unification in Jesus is a heartbeat for Paul in his writing to the Ephesians. And this heartbeat does not originate in Paul, though. It's not like he all of a sudden was like, you know what, I feel really passionate about that God has a plan that he's going to fulfill. No, he's formed and informed by his experience. He understands this all to be a continuation of the plan of God from the beginning. And we as a church are exploring this plan in our series called Ephesians, immeasurably more. So in order to grasp what Paul is saying in Ephesians, we have to go back to where he got it all from, the Hebrew Bible. We've got four quick scenes. Y'all down for a little tour? Okay, Bible 101. Boom, here we go. Scene one. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God makes humans. He chooses them among all the creatures to be his image on the land. I want you to be my representatives. And the first thing that he says to humans is a blessing. Things are going really well. Our story starts with goodness. And a blessing is an expression or a declaration of one's desire for life and flourishing for another. That can be fleshed out in words that you speak over to somebody, or it could be a gift. But nevertheless, a blessing is about adding or giving life to somebody else. God gifts humans with his representative rule over the land, and he's like, yo, I want y'all to grow in number. Spread my rulership everywhere. We're going to have fun. And as you read on, in between Genesis 1 and 12, humans grew, but so did violence and chaos. Things took a little bit of a turn. You got the Eden narrative, the flood narrative, and the Tower of Babel, which is a weird story. Is it just me? <laughs> Nevertheless, in that episode, uh, God scatters humans across the land. And out of that scattering, the next narrative is about God choosing a human through whom he would restore the Genesis 1 blessing through. And that's where we show up at our boy Abram, scene two. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. You can't, yo, blessing is a big deal. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, that phrase is going to be important, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is making a promise with Abraham. It is in him and through his family that God's blessing will go out to the other families of the earth. Are you following? Are you following? Good morning. Abraham's chosen line continues through Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob has all these dudes, and they have families, and then the family ends up in Egypt, and tragically, that family becomes enslaved for centuries. And God says, I remember my promises to Abraham. So he delivers them. And at Mount Sinai, they enter into another covenant, which is scene three. Exodus 19, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. Thus you will tell the house of Jacob and declare to the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I lifted you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now if you will diligently listen to me and keep my covenant, then you will be my special possession of all the nations. For all the earth is mine and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is dope, y'all. These are the words that you will speak to the Israelites. Israel was chosen to be God's possession. That word is going to come up. They're, they were to be a, a priestly and holy nation before, her, before him, and, and they were adopted by God as his covenant family. On one level, God is fulfilling his covenant to Abraham. They're literally his kids. I'm going to give you a family. That happens. But also, they are the vehicle through whom the blessing will return out to the nations. However, after this covenantal ceremony at the mountain, things go haywire, right? You read the Torah, things get wonky. Nevertheless, God says, I'm going to complete what I do. So after the older generation died, God prepared the new generations for them to inherit the land that was promised to their forefathers. And we end up at scene four, Deuteronomy. In a speech that Moses is giving to the Israelites, it says, because he meaning God, loved your fathers, he chose their descendants after them in person, and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land as an inheritance, as it is today. Later on in the speech it says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his personal possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not make you his beloved nor choose you because you were greater in number than any of the peoples, since you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which, which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Moses is retelling the family story. God is redeeming Israel so that he will fulfill his promises and so the blessing will go out. This is the family story that Paul has in his mind when he articulates something like majestic to the Ephesians. This is the background in his mind as he writes. So without further ado, I know you're like, bro, just get to Ephesians. 
But after his greeting to the church, Paul opens with a long run-on sentence. Verses 3 to 14 in Ephesians 1 is all one sentence. Like, bro, how much could you say? (laughs) Throw a semicolon in there or something, right? But here we are. And and just real quick, just side note. uh, Let us let Paul define his terms based on the scriptures in which he got them from. And he begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, excuse me, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace with which he has favored us in the beloved. That's pretty dope, ain't it? But Ephesians 1 is one of those texts. Let's just name it up front. Um, Some of you may be more aware than others, and that's okay. But this is one of those texts where in different church traditions, people are fighting over. There's a bunch of loaded words in here that people are like, this is what that means. And another say, no, that's what it means. Several church traditions read Ephesians 1 as an explanation on how God rescues or saves individuals. It could be easy for us to kind of import our church traditions and our current experiences back into the text. But what if that's not the Paul? I mean, what if, ooh, wait, that is Paul. What if that's not the question that Paul is trying to address about how the the mechanics, the mechanisms of how God saves individuals? What if that's not what he's trying to address here? Paul was formed and informed by his Bible and his experience, right? Okay, real quick. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and halfway in the conversation you're like, we're not talking about the same thing? (laughs) Let's just peel the curtain back real quick. Uh, This is my experience with my wife, friends, everybody. I'm like, oh, we're saying words that are the same, but we mean totally different things. What if that's the, the situation that we might have with Paul? With all of that said, Paul begins by praising God the Father as the bestower of blessings, of of spiritual blessings at that. Two things to note here. One, Paul is beginning this prayer statement, this long sentence, in a classic manner for Israelites. When they wanted to offer praise to God, oftentimes they would say, blessed be the God, ellipsis, that's the dot, 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 I just learned that, (laughs) or blessed be the Lord, ellipsis. And he's saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's offering up praise. You can find examples of this throughout the Psalms. But two, by mentioning the Father, Paul is setting up the letter within the context of a family. That's his whole gist. I want to communicate something to a family. Within this context, he's going to call upon the narratives of humanity at large, that's Genesis 1, and those of Abraham's chosen family. Remember the scenes that we went through as we go. And his opening has the Trinity written all over it. The Father is the one who blesses in the Son with spiritual blessings. These are blessings that are pertaining to or sourced from the Holy Spirit. It's not about a non-material, material type of thing. So what spiritual blessings has the Father given in Jesus? This is what Paul unpacks. He is recounting the family story of Israel. He is convinced there's nothing anybody can say to Paul. He is convinced that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and he is the culmination of their story. 
He is the climax. He is what it's all been driving to. And he has not come to throw that story to the side and create something from scratch. No, he's saying, I'm coming to build that thing up and I'm coming to bring others into the story. That is why all of us are sitting in this room at 12.05 and we could be doing whatever, brunch or whatever. Because he brings us in. Nevertheless, Israel's story is about God restoring blessing back to humanity at large and the Messiah has come to do that. So Paul is uploading the promise of humanity being blessed in Abraham as he articulates the blessing that happens in Jesus, who fulfills the purposes for Abraham's family. Anyone who joins the family of Jesus is swept back up into that Genesis 1 blessing. Okay. Paul reaches back, real far back, before creation. And he elaborates on God's plan to accomplish his purposes through the chosen one. Jesus is the chosen one. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He is the king. He's the one that's going to make all of this flesh out. But Jesus' chosenness is interwoven with Israel's. He's not detached from their story. He is an Israelite. Are you still with me? Okay, we're going somewhere. What does this mean for me, Hakeem? We'll get there. Paul does not write, though. Let's make a clarification. He does not write, he chose us to be in him. He says he chose us in him. God is not predetermining what individuals who in who will not be in the Messiah. Rather, he's predetermining what they will become. Anyone who comes into the Messiah will be like this. They will be holy, which means dedicated to, to God in particular. And they will be blameless, which means without defect. To the, to the Ephesians, this is the crazy part. I just learned this. Um, in their culture, babies who were considered to be with defects were thrown to the wayside, left for dead, and all types of ugly things. And it was people in the church who would take these babies and adopt them as their children. But who did they get that from? God which Paul says it was out of God's love that he would adopt a people as his family. Who did he originally adopt as his children? Israel. Oh, we got to okay, you okay, brother, I hear you. You get a gold star. But back in Exodus 4, when Moses is about to go to war with Pharaoh, God tells him, he says, I want you to tell, to tell Pharaoh, let my firstborn go. Israel is my firstborn. It's my son. Let him go. The father is after his children. And Paul is bringing this family history to the forefront by stating that in love, God has adopted children through his begotten son, Jesus. This is a continuation of the family story. Why? Because God is way more gracious than you and I could ever imagine. Blessing and adopting brings him joy. And Paul continues in verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our wrongdoings, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he set forth in him, regarding his plan of the fullness of the times, to bring all things together in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. 
This is still one sentence. My man got a lot to say. But if you recall the family history, the Israelites experienced redemption from Egypt. After their doorposts were covered with a lamb's blood in the Exodus, now in Paul's view, though, it is in Jesus that the shedding of, in, in the shedding of his blood that redemption from enslavement to sin has been accomplished. It's happening. Jesus is leading a new Exodus. Redemption is about buying back, delivering, rescuing. And for first century Jews, on one hand, they have their history in their mind of being exiled to Assyria for the northern tribes and then exiled to Babylon for the southern tribes. And to be exiled of the land is to, to be seen like going towards death. And they're like, no, 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 we need a new exodus to bring us back home. And then on the other hand, they're living under Roman occupation in their own homeland. And they still feel a sense of exile. They're saying, we need a new exodus. We're putting our hope in this person to come who will bring us back into the fullness of our relationship with the Most High. You know, um, humans have this thing about rebelling and being exiled, but God has this thing about redeeming and bringing back home. And exile has been an experience for humans since Genesis 3, but Jesus said, I came to handle that. So Paul is not only uploading the deliverance from Egypt, but he's rejoicing in the one who brings his people back from exile in an ultimate sense through the forgiveness of sins. Why did the Israelites go to, to exile in the first place? It was because of sin. But in this family, there's a new exodus, and sin is forgiven because that's how gracious the Father is. God thought it to be good that he would reveal his mysterious plan, which was to unify everything in Jesus. He's the, okay, I'm getting really hyped now. Here we go. Jesus is the connection point between the heavens and the earth. Where is he from? And where did he come to? He is the meeting place. Paul says something really interesting here. He says, <clears throat> with all wisdom and insight, God chose to reveal his plan. These key words would make a Jew think back to the Torah. What would lead a person into wisdom and insight of God's will? The Torah. It was revealing God's heart. And Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill that very thing. I am the revelation of God's wisdom and insight. And also, where is the place where heaven and earth would meet in a tangible sense? The tabernacle or the temple. And who's the new temple? Okay. I heard you. Paul is emphasizing that Jesus is the connection. It is in him that all things are brought together. And Jesus said himself, this is what he's coming to fulfill. Paul's talking about this whole thing about a mystery. Okay, in, in Ephesians 3, uh, it's real juicy. Okay, I was reading it and I was like, I don't want to steal too much of the juice there. But he says something in verse 6 in that chapter that I think is worth illuminating now. He says, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. 
This is where the story is heading, y'all. Verse 11 in chapter 1. Here we go. In him, we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with the plan of his will, to the end that we who were the first to put hope, I mean, the first to hope in the Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Think back to the family story. Who did God originally give an inheritance to? Israel. Are you tracking still? I don't want to lose you, but think about the story. Israel. Paul is retelling their story with a focus in Jesus. It is in him that there is an inheritance. In our modern minds, though, an inheritance, like, look, I wish my family had an inheritance they passed on to me. In my mind, though, like, it's a, in my modern mind, it's about money and material gain. I'm like, man, I want to buy a house. In this market, I need an inheritance, my brother. <laughs> Shout out to all you realtors out here. <laughs> but to them and their culture and world, inheritance was much more than that. And I'm not saying it isn't here now, but it was much more. It was about relational security and legacy. It's about family legacy that gets passed on from generation to generation. There is a secure family legacy here in Jesus. And Paul says something real twangy. He says, we who were the first to hope in the Christ. Who is he talking about? He's been saying we and us for like this whole sentence, right? Who is he talking about? Who were the first to hope in the Messiah? Israelites. They were the first. And I feel like in the traditions that I've come into the faith through, Israel gets put to the wayside when it comes to talking about God's plan for redeeming humanity. I feel like Israel, Jews, however, you know, whatever name we want to express right now, I feel like there's a disrespect to the elder brother in the faith. And what I'm not trying to do is convert you to... I mean, whoa, that's a bad word. Let me not even say that. Aaron, don't, don't get mad at me later, bro. That was a mis, misnomer. But what I'm not trying to do is make you become Jewish. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to illuminate the family story that you have been brought into. There's a legacy. Don't take my word for it. Let's go to verse 13. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of the promise, who is a first installment of our inheritance in regard to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. We have come to the end of the sentence. You also. I think it's a very interesting distinction that Paul is making within the twofold community in the Messiah. It's not to try to divide people, it's to try to say, yo, there's something majorly unifying that's happening in Jesus. He's referring to the Gentile believers in Ephesus. Paul talked, okay, I feel like I go on these tangents all the time, but when we talk about ethnic tensions and relations in the church, I feel like we often talk about Ephesians too, right? About the wall of hostility and all of that stuff. But like Paul is setting up his argument for the unification of Jew and Gentile in chapter one. This is where it's all leading to. And then he emphasizes more in chapter three. 
And everything after that, chapter four to six, is about what does it look like to live as a family of Jews and Gentiles unified in Jesus? These folks, when they heard the preaching of the good news, they trusted in the one in whom the good news was pointing towards. And as a result, they were marked, they were sealed by the Holy Spirit. And in that time and culture, important documents were secured with a seal. It's about security, but also it was about uh, labeling a document to show ownership. So in a way, Paul is saying, you have been sealed. You belong to the God of Israel. Not just you individually, you corporately. You've been brought in. God has been faithful to, 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 to fulfill his promises. I would not be on the stage had not God fulfilled his promises. You would not be in these seats had not God fulfilled his promises. And guess what? He's not stopping today. Okay. In an ultimate sense, the blessings that Paul has been talking about this whole time are applicable to all believers in the Messiah, since, goal, since God's goal from the beginning was for the nations to have his blessing, for humans to dwell in harmony and flourishing with him and with one another. God is dead set on making that the reality in which all of us live into. It's about life, shalom, presence. The blessing equally applies to Jews and Gentiles in Jesus. Now again, there are different takes. People will disagree. Maybe you will disagree with what I just said about this text. But what's undoubtedly true is that Paul is emphasizing Jesus. That's who he keeps emphasizing in him, through him, under him in some translations. It's all about what's taking place in the Messiah. He is the big deal. He is the chosen one. He is the elected one. He is the son. He is the main heir, the inheritor of all that the father has promised. Yet he says, I want siblings to share it with. Of my people Israel and of those from the nations. He is the reason you and I are gathered together right now. We are here to worship this guy who changed the scope of the world. Regardless of how people feel about him, he's changed the world. People are talking about him 2,000 years later. You got to gotta be pretty dope. Maybe that's a bias, but I don't know. God wants more children to give the inheritance too. That inheritance is the kingdom of God. The kingdom is here now and not yet fully. The kingdom is what Jesus kept beating his drum on. Every time he seemed to open his mouth, he was always talking about the kingdom or living into that kingdom. It's not only a reality in the age to come, it is a reality that reorients our lives today. We will inherit new creation in this family, but we get a foretaste now. We will be kings and queens alongside Jesus, the king. And oftentimes when we talk about the kingdom of God, it can be in some ethereal sense or an abstract concept, but the kingdom is real life. It's about human interaction and relationships with one another and with the creator of us all. It's where healing of wounds take place. 
It's where sins are forgiven, where adoption into the family happens, where the blessing is experienced. It's where security and stability is given, but not in some life circumstantial way. Relationally, you're good to go. And not just you and the, I'm talking about us corporately. But the odds are, most of us don't wake up in the morning like, man, I really wonder how the mysterious plan is going to impact my day today. Let me just make my coffee. But regardless if we recognize it or not, it's changing us. As I said earlier, you know, uh, how many of you guys got kids? Okay, cool. You ever watch your kids grow and like mark up the wall when they start getting taller and taller and taller? You don't notice, like you can't see when the bones and ligaments start stretching. I mean, my ligaments are very tall, right? No, you don't see it, but you recognize at some point, oh my gosh, you grew. What if that's the same thing that takes place in this family? You don't always recognize when you're growing, when you're in the midst of it, but you are. Like God is dead set. He said it. He's dead set on making those in Jesus to be like him. That will happen. That's his goal, is to make us like Jesus so that the world is restored to the blessing. Yo, I I need that to be true. Okay. In the words of my friend Adam Thomason, he would say, bro, what does all of that mean for Monday? That was a good question, man. What does all of this mean for Monday? It means that you navigate the day as a member and representative of the family. If you're someone who will feel the temptation to make a snarky comment or a hurtful comment to your spouse or your friend, or maybe even online, just pause for a moment and remember the type of family that you're a part of. Called to be holy and blameless, right? Not self-serving and blameful. We're representing something much bigger than ourselves. You're someone who has answered the call to foster or adopt children into your household. You are living out the heart of the Father. And I applaud you. And I can only imagine the roller coaster of experience that it might be to have taken someone into your household and say, no, that's my kid. Regardless if they came from you biologically or not, you say, that is my child. That is the heart of God. Keep at it. If you're someone who feels trapped and enslaved by habitual sin, I want to encourage you to remember how gracious our Father is. And it's his joy to redeem his children. So let's confess and bring it to the light. Bring it to Jesus. He's leading a new exodus in which he delivers from Sin and offers forgiveness and restoration today. And you know what? He's going to do it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Okay, you get the point. He is the lamb whose blood was shed to provide the evidence of this new exodus. If you're someone who is compelled by Jesus' invitation like Aaron was to recategorize and reorient your life, maybe for the first time, or to do it again, just to have a reminder. 
Please never stop listening to the message of truth. The gospel, like the good news will never be old news. Ever. You might be in a post-Christian society or whatever that means, but you'll never be in a post-Jesus era ever. And when you join the family, you join into something that is much bigger than yourself. And you will, excuse me, you, let me just drink this. He's the living water, right? Anyways. <laughs> I heard my, my grandmother say, hallelujah, anyway. <laughs> Wherever the dust may settle for you in terms of specifics and details, remember that this is about a corporate reality that you've been brought into. Your experiences may be personal, but they're not in isolation. We all affect one another's paths, one way or the other. That's family. So here are two encouragements for Monday and the rest of the week. One, read and meditate on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He lays out everyday circumstances of how life in the kingdom operates. He taught about it all over the Gospels, but Matthew 5 to 7 is really interesting. If you put these words into practice, you will see how the family of God operates. And in this family, those who are considered lowly, dismayed, pushed to the side, and powerless are uplifted. And in this family, we work through our anger with one another so that we do not become murderous in our hearts. In this family, we keep on asking. Y'all remember Tyler talking about that? You keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking in our prayers because we will receive, find, and the doors will be opened. And these are just a couple things from his sermon. Reading and meditating on his words are a way for us to be with him it's a way for us to become like him as we learn to see the world as he does. And it's a way to do what he did in our daily interactions, which leads me to number two. When you pray, ask God to help you act on the stirrings and burdens that you feel for others. The inheritance of the kingdom is not solely about receiving, it's about participating in what the family does. And we all remember this whole thing? And I was like, Jesus has come to stomp on the serpent's head. That's not about a headache. He's here to, like, kill him. He's come to destroy the devil's work. That's what the family does. But how? Doing good works. It's our participation in the kingdom. The humans of Genesis 1 and 2 were given the land, and they were told to steward it. Abraham was chosen to do righteousness and justice. Israel was chosen to be a light to the nations by doing what? Righteousness and justice. Jesus, the chosen one, lived a life of righteousness and justice. So what do you think we're to do for those who are in him? Come on, somebody. Bridgetown has partnerships with various organizations to spread the blessing to those around, to spread the shalom, to spread the wholeness, to various circumstances in our city. What would it look like for you to jump on board or pray on behalf of or refer somebody to? Who can you practice generosity to tomorrow? Who can you attempt to reconcile within your family, your friend group, or your working space? Who can you tell the message of truth to? 
And this message of truth has changed my life. Absolutely changed my life. Um, I've, I've talked about my story a little bit. Okay, I got a couple minutes. Um, I, I've talked about my story a little bit, but I came into the faith 10 years ago. And I've heard this word family thrown around all the time. And when I think about the word family, I carry a lot of baggage with that. Don't worry, like the folks I was born, like that community I was born into is solid, like full of solid folks. But like there's no legacy that I know, like these are what the Bradleys do that has been passed on from generation to generation. And that's what I long for. I wanna know I'm making somebody proud. You know, I'm grateful to have parents who are still here. I wanna make them proud. I want to make my children proud. I want to make my wife proud. I want to make my friends and church community proud. But even more than that, I want to carry on the legacy that God has established throughout time. I want to make him proud. And just for him to one day say to me and to the rest of us, like, well done, son. Well done, daughter. That's all I want. And something clicked for me two years ago in the church. Like, again, I've been in this thing for 10 years, but two years ago, something changed. Where I started to see that I was brought into a family legacy that is not original to me, but I've been engrafted into as if it was. So I could sit across the table from somebody who actually comes from the line of Abraham, and I can go, brother, we are brothers. Like, I'm looking around. I know there's a, look. Everybody in here comes from different ethnicity groups. The nations are in the room. Regardless if most of you have pale skin, you're from a different nation. <laughs> the blessing has been lived. It's happening in this space. And I'm not trying to, you know, get you excited about that. I feel that tension. This is the testament to the world that God is who he says that he is. This is the witness. Come on, Drew. So let me end off with this. The invitation is to join the family, whether you are young or you are older, whether you are from wherever or from another, whether you are Jew or Gentile, the invitation is open to join the family of the Messiah and spread the blessing. This is what it's all been gearing up towards. And I refuse for us not to be a continual witness to this city. Everybody's watching. Maybe not with binoculars, but people are watching how the people of God operate. And it is our witness that is on stake. But guess what? God is going to fulfill what he said he's going to do regardless. And that is our mission.